This is New York firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Every day, a part of every sub you buy at Firehouse Subs helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. And now, for a limited time, they're introducing the Daily Sub Special. Every day, get a medium sub of the day for just $5.55. They kick it off with Meatball Monday and finish it off with Italian Sunday with something delicious every day in between for just $5.55. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Tap the banner now to learn more. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest of this morning is Michael Sullivan. He is the author of Not Our Day to Die, Testimony from the Guatemalan Jungle. Michael was born and raised in northwestern Illinois. He studied aeronautical engineering at the University of Colorado following a tour of duty in Vietnam. In 1972, he got his pilot's license and decided to travel the world, encountering adventures and lived to share his experiences. Michael and I will be having a wonderful conversation about his life's journey traveling the world as a pilot for hire and his recently released book, Not Our Day to Die, Testimony from the Guatemalan Jungle. Good morning, Michael. Happy 2018 to you and welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, very, very well, thank you. Happy to be here. Fantastic. Wonderful to have you on there with me. Not Our Day to Die is a very interesting but very difficult book to read. Congratulations in bringing the plight of the Itzcan people to light. Well, thank you very much. Let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Well, I was born in uh, northwestern Illinois, lived there till I was 17, I guess. And then uh, after that, for the next five years, was a mixture of school and military service. I was in the Navy, did a tour in uh, uh, Vietnam on a riverboat. And then afterwards went back to school at the University of Colorado where I studied uh, aeronautical engineering. Um, when when that was over, uh, I started learning to fly. And uh, pretty much as soon as I got my pilot's license, I had, headed south. I had spent a little bit of time in New Mexico, which was... Uh, there were Hispanic people in my hometown, but in New Mexico, the Hispanic culture was um, not the dominant culture, but close to it. It was the first time I saw it so intact, and mm-hmm. I wanted to live more or learn more about that culture. And so I headed south on a motorcycle looking for a flying job and uh, encountered one pretty much by chance in Guatemala. Very, very interesting. You mentioned something about the uniqueness of, I guess, the Mexican culture as compared to how you live and grew up and so forth. What is the difference in their life as compared to when you were growing up in northwestern Illinois? Well, um, it wasn't a totally homogeneous town. There were Hispanics Mm -hmm. and so on. But but here, in, well, 
I'm in New Mexico now. Mm-hmm. Here in New Mexico, uh, the culture is much stronger. Uh, official documents are in English and Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, Spanish is heard on the radio. I think probably it is now throughout the country, but at that time it was something new to me. And uh, I worked building an adobe house out in uh, at a monastery, actually, out mm-hmm. in a canyon in very, a very rural part of New Mexico. And I was just fascinated with the culture. And, and uh, that, I guess, inspired me to to head south. And I was looking for a flying job, but I wanted to fly a, find a flying <laughs> job in a Latin country. I understand. What led you to the study of aeronautical engineering in college? No, nothing very profound. Uh, um, I was in my end of my first year, I think, in college, and uh-huh. I didn't even understand the concept of a major. I just thought everybody went to college. And and then I discovered the next day uh, we all had to pick a major, and there was a list mm-hmm. of the things that were available. And that afternoon, some... Uh, fighter pilot came over the athletic field where I was playing a game and pulled straight up into the sky and did some rolls and I thought, wow, it'd be neat to be a pilot and I went back to the list and there was aeronautical engineering so that was the basis of my profound decision. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I guess a young adult growing up, we need some sort of motivation and those are the kind of things that sort of drew person to take a specific look at a particular field of interest in college. I remember that when I was in college, I enrolled in agricultural engineering, and the concept behind it was because I wanted to travel the world and do some good in some ways. And of course, that didn't exactly pan out the way (laughs) it needed to be, but it's just exciting to know how one come up with specific things. But obviously, in your case, studying aeronautical engineering, I guess, in a way, sort of pointed you in the direction of getting a pilot's license. Yeah, I think the the pilot's license desire was probably the motivating factor for going into mm-hmm. aeronautical engineering. And, and then I was, I don't know, I was strongly influenced by my future father-in-law, mm-hmm. who um, he was an anthropologist, but he started out as a young man uh, as a pilot. He was a bush pilot up in Canada. And it, it just seemed like a neat thing to do, sort of following his footsteps. Very, very interesting. Obviously, you have experienced so much in sense that at a very young age, in a way, doing a tour of duty in Vietnam, and all of a sudden right now you're able to see different things that sort of fascinates you. So was that sort of a natural you to be an adventurous person, or is that something in life that happened somewhere when you were a child that sort of like, wow, I do want to explore the world, so to speak? No, I, you know, I never saw my life as so adventurous, although mm-hmm. a lot of people have made that comment. But um, <laughs> I, I just kind of took things one day at a time and... Uh, I think the thing that makes life adventurous is not being afraid to try something. And mm-hmm. I think that maybe I got from my mom. She was not a uh, adventurous person. In the, you know, she didn't ride a motorcycle to Central America, but she had traveled a lot. <laughs> and uh, 
uh, I, I don't. I guess I would say she was the one who sort of opened my eyes to the fact that you could do crazy things that would come to your mind that they weren't crazy that they were just something you could do. Coming back to being a pilot, when did flying planes become a career? Oh, I think from the very beginning. Um, you know, when I was just a student pilot, I, I think I only made one flight as a private pilot, you know, for pleasure. I gave a friend an airplane ride. And then I went right into working on a commercial license. And uh, pretty much as soon as I completed my commercial license and instrument rating, I just uh, started looking for a flying job. I think that was the original purpose. Do you own a plane right now, sir? Or at any given time, did you own your own plane? Yeah, I had one for about uh, 27 years, I think. I, uh, uh, one of the places we lived was up in southeast Alaska, and really the only way in or out was by plane or by boat. Mm-hmm. So the plane started out as our family car. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, it sounds crazy, but uh, it's, it's reasonably common up there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had it for several years, and then I went back to Central America. Um, I guess we'll get into that later. But after the mm-hmm. after the war years, um, when people returned to Guatemala from exile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went back down with that airplane and flew for another, oh, about another year and a half total. Sounds very interesting. Well, the reason I asked a little bit more about the planes and so forth, I had a good friend of mine up in New York that gave me the opportunity to be the pilot of his plane once we were up in the air. And I have to tell you, when I hold on that yoke... <laughs> It feels totally different for me. It's like I'm so afraid of slightly veering to the right or the left, and I'm thinking visually that I'm on this middle lane or right lane or left lane like on the highway, and if I veer a little bit off, I'm in someone else's path. He told me that that's crazy. Don't worry about it. (laughs) It's a wonderful sensation to feel. I really enjoyed that. It's fascinating on the fact that it's totally different, and you mentioned about being in Alaska, and that's the mode of transportation for you and your family. Yeah, that was how we got around, if we wanted to leave town. (laughs) What was the most exciting part of the world you have worked at as a pilot? Oh, boy, they're all different, you know. I think um, a lot of people who have worked in the Foreign Service or the Peace Corps say that your first overseas assignment is the one that sticks with you in your heart, sort of. And and uh, that would be true for me of Guatemala. That's where I made the best friends and where mm-hmm. I keep going back. And uh, that was exciting, perhaps, because, uh, you know, the conditions were rough. The airstrips weren't that mm-hmm. good. The mountains were high and the weather was bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, airplanes weren't very good; they were pretty marginal. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that always, you know, excitement is not a good thing when you're flying around necessarily. <laughs> and then, uh, 
later we went to uh, New Guinea for about two and a half years on the half of the island of New Guinea that belongs to Indonesia. That's right. And uh, that was that was much better organized. Uh, the airplanes were just as old, but they were well maintained. And uh, the culturally speaking, it was an incredible place. You know, I could make uh, four flights a day and land, not in four different dialects, but in four completely different uh, languages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So culturally, that was a fascinating place. And the, the airstrips are pretty wild up on the side of mountains and steep grades up to 14%, things like that. And uh, I don't know, for after all that, I got into seaplanes. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's another world in that, you know, you can go anywhere where there's some water if the waves aren't too high. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it makes going to an airport kind of boring in a way. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. You had a period of time where you were working with Jacques Cousteau. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, let me think when that was. Okay, so uh, I left Guatemala in 1975, and I came up to the States to get an airplane mechanics license. Um, And uh, the mechanics school was just finishing, and I was thinking of debating whether or not to go back to Guatemala when the government shut down the, the flying operation there. And, and I heard that the Cousteaus were looking for a co-pilot mechanic for a PBY, which is an old World War II-era uh, seaplane, an old patrol, long-range patrol plane. So that was with Philippe Cousteau, mainly. And uh, we had our own team on the boat, some divers, a surface cameraman, a sound man, a cook. And we would uh, fly that thing out and land somewhere and stay for, oh, maybe five days anchored. And uh, I was part of the dive team. There were four of us who were the divers. And, uh, yeah, that was fun. That was exciting. And I did that for about two and a half years. And uh, then I left and got married, and about five years later, well, about a year, about a year after I got married, I saw, we were in Tanzania, and I saw an old Mm -hmm. Time magazine, and in the obituaries it listed uh, Philippe Cousteau, he had been killed uh, Mm -hmm. in that airplane in a crash in Portugal. Mm -hmm. And... uh, you know, I was fairly incommunicado at the time. I had no yeah, idea that yeah. that had happened. Hmm. So then later I went back to work for the Cousteaus more directly with the Calypso mm-hmm. um, for another, oh, seven years or so, flying a smaller seaplane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that, that was... You know, the the flying was interesting. Uh, culturally, it was interesting because we were in different countries. And when I was mm-hmm. on the boat, I was in France. And when I was off the boat, uh, I was in whatever country we happened to be working in. 
The reason why I ask you that question, because I remember growing up in Malaysia as a young kid, I had seen several of Jacques Cousteau's special on TV. I don't quite remember all the things, but I thought it was fascinating and I remembered the name. And coming back to the idea of the fact that you live an adventurous life, I mean, you are, because I used to read a lot of uh, National Geographics. And to me, you're the guy who actually in the magazine that flew all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe uh, that could be true. Coming back to your connection with Guatemala, please tell us the history of the Guatemalan people. Oof. Well, how to condense 500 years down to something. <laughs> um, well, I... I was thinking of two books that mm-hmm. that would help a person really understand Guatemala. One was written, it's called The Conquista de Nueva España, The Con- Conquest of New Spain. Mm-hmm. It's by a guy named Bernal Diaz. He was a soldier in the army of the conquistadors that, uh, when Spain first conquered Central America and Southern Mexico. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, he later settled in Guatemala. I think he was a governor of uh, a part of Guatemala. But he, he had been really more of a foot soldier, and he wrote this book, and it's a wonderful explanation of the the first contact of Europe with uh, Central America. And then um, if you jump forward um, all the way to the 1950s. There's a book called Bitter Fruit. It seems to be by several authors, but the lead author is always listed as uh, uh, Stephen Schlesinger. And that's the story of uh, United States involvement with Guatemala during the Eisenhower years. And um, we, they had a, a leftist president who uh, was trying to get land really for the poor, and he confiscated land from United Fruit Company. He took it and he paid them the value that they had declared uh, as the value of the land for tax purposes. So I, I can imagine that was a small number, but anyway... Um, so to make a long story short, um, we overthrew the government and uh, installed a military dictatorship, which lasted uh, up until very recently, and, and uh, we've been bearing the, the fruit of that, and the Guatemalan people have too. So those two... Those two books, The Conquista de Nueva España and Bitter Fruit, would be two, you know, it's not a total history. They're two snapshots in time, but they talk about two huge events, you know, the the conquest by Europeans and uh, the overthrow of a modern government by, by our own government. So, I don't know, if your listeners want a place to start, that would be my recommendation and go on from there. Fantastic. That's really wonderful. 
By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest is Michael Sullivan. He is the author of Not Our Day to Die, Testimony from the Guatemalan Jungle. Michael was born and raised in northwestern Illinois. He studied aeronautical engineering at the University of Colorado following a tour of duty in Vietnam. In 1972, he got his pilot's license and decided to travel the world, encountering adventures and live to share his experiences. Michael and I are having a conversation about his life's journey as a bush pilot and his recently released book, Not Our Day to Die, Testimony from the Guatemalan Jungle. Michael, when did you go down to Guatemala and got involved with the Itzcon people? Well, uh, as soon as I got my my flying license, uh, I bought a little motorcycle and just headed south. Um, I didn't look for a job in Mexico because I knew you had to be a Mexican citizen to work commercially there. So I just kind of went through as a tourist. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Guatemala, by chance, well, I had helped a couple of kids, American kids, find the bus station in Mexico City. And they said they were going to work at a mission in Guatemala, and if I ever got there, they'd put me up for the night. So that was that. And then uh, eventually I did get to Guatemala, and I went to that place. Uh, The two boys weren't there. They had arrived, but they weren't there the day I arrived. And and, uh, But I spent the night. I had a lot of uh, volunteers there working on different projects. And when I was leaving in the morning, the padre asked me who I was and what I was doing there, and I told him I was looking for a flying job. And so he suggested that I contact um, a very old priest in Guatemala City who had this land reform project out in the jungle in this area called Ishkan. It's right up on the Mexican border by Chiapas. And uh, so I went to talk to him, and that afternoon uh, we went to the zoo where there was a, a photographer he took my picture, and then we went over to the airport, put my picture on a Guatemalan pilot's license, and the next day uh, I had a, a three-hour lesson on how to fly that kind of airplane that he had, and the day after that I, we went out to the jungle. He showed me all the airstrips, and, and I had a job. That sounds very, very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wasn't your normal... Uh, application process, I wouldn't say. How long were you there with the Itzcan people? Well, I was there about uh, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, I left to come back up to the States to get a mechanics license. Airplane mechanic is a lot different than an aeronautical engineer. The mechanic, you know, the aeronautical engineer is kind of a theoretical guy thinking about things, and right. the mechanic's the guy keeping these things flying. And uh, uh, I decided if I was going to survive in this business, I better learn how to fix the planes and fix my mistakes and. <laughs> So I came out to the States for a year and went to school to get the mechanics license. 
And I guess it's not that bad either. If you ever were to get stranded, you can work on, for lack of better term, your own plane. Yeah, if you have, uh, you know, the parts, you can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have fixed airplanes out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, mm-hmm. so it's been handy. Half the time, I think I'm really glad I did that because, uh, as you just said, you could, you know, fix your plane when you're out stuck, stranded somewhere. And half the time, I think I would have been more relaxed if I didn't know all the things that could go wrong, you know. Michael, I think that for you, when you look at a plane right now, no matter how big or small, I'm sure maybe somewhere along the line, the humongous intercontinental plane, it's a little bit intimidating. But you are looking at planes like we look at cars. I'm just talking about the average Joe. If we have been driving the compact car, subcompact car, it's no big deal. And then, of course, then we see this tractor trailer that's intimidating to us. That what would be the jumbo jet kind of thing. But mm-hmm. having said that, you're looking at planes just about any kind, I would think. Like you say, it's, it's a form of transportation. It's no big deal. Yeah, it is. It's form of transportation. And in my line of work, it's how practical is it? You know, can you? Right. Can you get a 55-gallon drum or a sheet of plywood through the door? Those are things that are important mm-hmm. in Alaska or New Guinea, but mm-hmm. maybe not so much here in the United States. How did you find out about the struggles and the hardship of the people you left behind? Well, um, really, I knew nothing about it. I, in 19, I left Guatemala in '75 and came up to go to the school, and in 1976, there was a big earthquake down there and killed about 30,000 people. And I knew that at the time, my little flying operation had uh, three airplanes and only two pilots. So uh, I just jumped on a flight the next day and went down. And uh, we were flying all over the country, just landing on highways or uh, well, not fields really, but straight stretches of highway, uh, delivering medicine mainly. So many roads had been blocked uh, by landslides from the earthquake. And and after that sort of settled down, the emergency, the flying part of it was over. I made a couple trips back out to the Ishkan. And for the first time, I really saw the presence of the military, and I saw people feeling a little bit uh, intimidated um, by that presence. There really wasn't violence yet, but there was kind of an uncomfortable feeling. And uh, then I went back and uh, went off with Cousteau for a couple years and then uh, went to New Guinea. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, Africa for a year, and then New Guinea. And, and when I returned to the states, I heard about refugees from Guatemala, and I had had no idea uh, that this civil war was raging down there. It just didn't make the news in New Guinea. And that was when I first found out about the, the tragedy, really, that was unfolding all over the country. While you were away, did you ever keep track with anyone in the region? Um, not really. Uh, at one point, um, 
was working down in South America. That was with the Cousteaus. And at that time, the big airline going north and south was Pan American. Mm-hmm. And all the Pan American flights came into Guatemala City from three or four places in South America. The passengers would swap planes, and then the planes would go on to L.A. and Florida and New York. And uh, so I called the priest that I'd been flying for to come and have a drink at the airport that I'd have a couple hour layover and I found mm-hmm. out that he had been killed in an aircraft accident mm-hmm. and so I just got off the plane and uh, with another friend we went up to the accident site to try and see if we could figure out what had happened and uh we never did. It was a clear blue day. He flew over the mountains and then crashed back into the backside of the mountains. So it wasn't like, you know, just flying into the rocks when you're in a cloud or something. Mm-hmm. It was a very mysterious thing, and everybody wondered, you know, if he had been assassinated. And, and he had received death threats mm-hmm. and, and was uh he had been warned by the American ambassador that he should leave the country. And so he was kind of lining up his affairs and I think was going to leave in about two minute, months when he was killed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a very mysterious thing. We we couldn't determine from the wreck exactly why it had crashed. We, we could determine that it wasn't an engine failure. The engine was still running at the time. But other than that, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to write Not Our Day to Die? Well, um, I have a brother-in-law who is a professional photographer, and he had a contract with a big American publisher of children's books to do a children's book. and. And uh, he was going to do something about a dance program that goes on in American public schools. Another friend of his was going to write the story. So they both had children. My brother-in-law had twins, and this project kept getting put off. And finally the publisher uh, called him and says, you know, we gave you a couple thousand dollars advance, and we don't have a book, and... uh, we don't really want that book anymore, but we want a book, so think of something else. And uh, he was busy. He was teaching in the university, and he was thinking, boy, how can I put these guys off for a while? And so he suggested a book in Afghanistan, him photographing children and, and the writer interviewing the children about their lives. And he thought, yeah, that'll slow him down for a while, and they called the next day and said, that sounds great, when can you go? So um, he had been in Afghanistan as a photojournalist during the Russian war. And and, uh, the the man who was going to do the writing couldn't go. And um, so his wife, my sister-in-law, said, well, what about Mike? He studied... uh, uh, anthropology filmmaking and documentary mm-hmm. filmmaking he could do the interviews and so like a week later we were in Afghanistan interviewing children all over the not all over the country we didn't go to the far south because it was just 
that's where the war is really raging. And uh, so then we made a book called Afghan Dreams. Mm-hmm. Then later we decided to do a book about children along the U.S.-Mexican border. And we were working in Juarez, uh, photographing and interviewing kids. And uh, one of the people who was squiring us around and introducing us to people who worked with children's programs knew me from Guatemala. And he said, you know, what you should really do is go down and interview the elders from this land reform project. Because the, the, the elders are, you know, respected, and that's in that culture. I'm sure in Malaysia, uh, too, being an elder is mm-hmm. a, a position of consequence. And, and so I decided to do that and uh, went down there in 2010 and 2011. I think I made three trips down. And... Uh, interviewed pretty much people I had met in the 70s, although, you know, there was a few thousand of them, and there was three pilots, and so they all knew me. I, maybe Some of them I knew, some of them just, it was more a case of they remembered me from flying the planes. But it gave me an entree, and uh, people were very frank and very open, and... and uh, and so I was able to do these interviews. Very, very interesting. What was the condition like in terms of the time that you were there prior to all of these things happening versus the time now you're going back for the interview? What was the living condition like? Well, um, well, when I went back, I went back earlier. Well, let me think. I went back during the conflict, and uh, I walked through part of the Ishkan to see if it was safe to move about, and it seemed, you know, reasonable. Mm-hmm. The, the thing in those situations, it's safe until it's not, and you don't know when you've crossed that line, really, until it's too late. But it seemed like I could get away with going through with the film crew and uh, making a documentary about what had happened. And uh, a photographer who was a friend from the Cousteau uh, Mm -hmm. days and uh, uh, an assistant who was a friend of mine from the States and from film school, we went and uh, worked on a documentary. And at that time, all those villages were gone. They were erased. There was just grass growing where there had been a town and uh, so we made a little documentary and then um, after going through the Ishkan area we went up to Mexico and filmed a little bit in some of the refugee camps mm-hmm. when, when the violence happened some of the, these were highland people mostly some of the people went back to the highlands um, Ishkan, I should explain, is a low-lying, relatively low-lying area of uh, jungle. And the people came, moved down there from the mountains. So during the violence, some people returned to the mountains. Some uh, fled across the border into Mexico. 
And a third group uh, stayed hidden in the jungle for 16 years, fleeing from the army when there would be an offensive and then moving back Mm -hmm. and trying to survive. So then my next contact was really 1996, when the first uh, refugee, or 95, when the first refugee returned took place, and I rode with them back to the edge of the Ishkan. And they asked me if I would come back and fly. And you had asked if I had that airplane. It was a little Cessna right. 180. Carry, well, in the States, it would carry four people. Down there, it would carry six, because people were small. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went back down, and at that time, people were, uh, you know, rebuilding houses from nothing we we bought two trees and paid a guy with a chainsaw to to saw them into boards and build a house mm-hmm. and uh, so we had the nicest house in town at that time it wouldn't be anymore you know people have progressed right but when i went down in 2010 and 11 um people were more or less back to the level they had been to when the violence began. So they they lost about 16 years of their life and uh, mm-hmm. were, were starting out from where they left off in the late 70s. Very interesting. Besides just being involved with the day-to-day living, in a sense, because you were there and you were really getting engaged, what moved you the most during the first series of the interviews when you went down there to talk to the people? Well, um, the first one, ironically, is the first one also in the book. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, this was a guy I didn't know too well. He was in that group of people that stayed hidden in the jungle. And uh, they had that group of people had decided to stick together. And they were largely, but not all, original members of the cooperative in the Ishkan. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they they moved to another town. Uh, uh, I think mainly the Catholic Church and a little bit the UN helped them buy uh, an, a farm, a finca, which mm-hmm. would be like a I guess we would use the word a hacienda, mm-hmm. but a big plot of land, and they settled and built a, a town there. And uh, I went to that place and interviewed him, and it was it was an amazing story of staying hidden in the jungle for 16 years, fleeing army offenses, mm-hmm. Um and about, you know, there was no schools for the kids, and, and so they said, well, these kids have got to have some schooling. And so they taught them to write with uh, sticks of charcoal on a board or on a flat rock from the river. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in spite of all the suffering, he... You know, he mentioned the suffering, he mentioned the death, he mentioned the killing, but he also mentioned the the kids learning and how uh, now some of them are teachers in his village. And 
throughout all the interviews, there you know, you were saying the book's hard to read. A lot of people yeah. have told me that because there's well, there's a lot of sadness in there. Right. But along with that, the people had a a, a dignity and a optimism that was just astounding. To right. It's amazing. It's a beautiful book. It was very well done. The story you mentioned is the gentleman you talked to for the first interview was just amazing. Alejandro Ramirez Cruz is his name. So it's just fascinating. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. My guest is Michael Sullivan. He is the author of Not Our Day to Die, Testimony from the Guatemalan Jungle. Michael was born and raised in northwestern Illinois. He studied aeronautical engineering at the University of Colorado following a tour of duty in Vietnam. In 1972, he got his pilot's license and decided to travel the world, encountering adventures and live to share his experiences. Michael and I are having a conversation about his life's journey as a bush pilot and his recently released book, Not Our Day to Die, Testimony from the Guatemalan Jungle. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Michael, what other stories in the book you can share with us that sort of really encapsulated the essence of the book? Well, I don't know. The, you know, in these situations, I think the people that suffer more mm-hmm. than anybody are the women. Yes. And uh, I tried to interview, I think I interviewed almost the same number of women and men. And in addition, you know, to all the suffering, fleeing through the jungle and stuff, there, they had to cook. They're having babies. You know, they had babies all throughout the years they were hidden in the jungle. And, uh, you know, one woman um, had a, a child as she was fleeing from the uh, military offensive. Her husband was carrying her. Uh, he, she was in a, on a wooden chair on his back, and she delivered the child, and he just kept on carrying her. And when they crossed the river into Mexico, that's when they were able to put the chair down and deliver the placenta. Mm -hmm. This is an unbelievable thing. Apparently, another lady said that a lot of women died in childbirth. Other people have told me that, um, um, you know, they figured things out and they found herbs and stuff in the jungle to, to, to help you know, staunch bleeding and childbirth and so on. But, uh, yeah, I I don't know. The the women's stories were just uh, amazing. And then there there was a guy, um, Chepe Salas, who I've known. Him, he, I knew well in the 1970s. He worked in the store. Uh, Each, what we did was we'd cut airstrips out of the jungle we did six of them, I think. And then around the airstrips, a town would grow up, and each town had a clinic, a uh, general store. Mm-hmm. And he ran the the clinic slash general store in one of these towns. And uh, then I met him again when he was a refugee in Mexico in the 90s, and, and uh, he was a, one of the strongest leaders of the 
the refugees. And then I met him again um, in 1996 when I went back down to fly after the return. And I interviewed him in 2010, and that was all fine. I had a story. And then one day I was sitting with him and, an, and another friend of his, a Guatemalan who had fled to Los Angeles in the States, and he was back for a visit. And he started telling this story, and I said, wait, wait, stop. And I ran and got my little tape recorder. Um, when the violence was getting bad in the late 1970s, the, the people tried to protest and to put something in the newspapers, and the newspapers were afraid to write anything. They were muzzled by the government. Mm-hmm. And so they decided, a group of people got together and decided to take over a foreign embassy. And they thought that way at least the foreign press will pay attention to us. And they took over the Spanish embassy. And uh, the Spaniards inside, there were about four diplomats still inside. They said, you know, nobody's threatening us. It's okay. Don't attack. You know, we're all okay. We're just talking. And uh, the Guatemala City Police, I think mainly, were the ones. They burned the place down with everybody inside of it. I think four or five Spaniards were burned alive and about 28 or 30 Guatemalans. And one of the most famous of those was uh, Vicente Menchu, whose daughter, Mm -hmm. Rigoberta Menchu, eventually uh, co-authored a book, Yo, Rigoberta, um, I am Rigoberta, more or less. And she became a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Well, the, the conversation that, that Chepe Salas was having was about that. And uh, it turned out that he was one of the originators of the idea of taking over an embassy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was on his way to the embassy. And, you know, none of these guys had cars. Uh, out in the jungle, a few of them even had a horse or a mule. Mostly they carried everything on their backs. So they had uh, taken a bus to the city, and then they had uh, rented a car to go to the takeover of the embassy, and the car broke down. And by the time they got it fixed, the embassy was already surrounded, and they couldn't get in, these four guys, one of which was uh, uh, Chepe. And he very matter-of-factly said to me, yeah, we couldn't get in, the army had surrounded the place. It was not our day to die. And that's where the title of the book came from. Very interesting. In looking at the struggles of the people, in reading the book, it reminds me of the fact that faith comforts, hope inspires, and love empowers. The reason I said that because faith is looking backwards, basically, and what they have had before. And then hope inspires them to whereby one day they could get back to where they at. And then, obviously, the human instinct to survive, that love empowers, just the fact that they're together and making it work. And like you were talking about, living for 16 years with the desire to really succeed and live and making sure that the future generations would not have to go through what they went through. Well... That's true. I hope they have success. Um, mm-hmm. 
some people, you know, the the, the war is over. Um, the, when we went down in '96, the ceasefire was signed while we were down there, and towards the end of '96, they signed an actual peace accord. Um, but one of the people said to me, you know, before we knew who was doing the killing, and people are still being killed. The difference mm -hmm. is now we don't know who it is. So there's optimism. Things are much better, and uh, but there's still a ways to go. There's still some violence happening, and uh, I don't know. The people are amazingly resilient. They just right. persevere. Right. What life lessons would you like for the readers to gain from reading the book? <laughs> well, we talked about this before, and and mm -hmm. I don't know that I feel like that's not for me to say. I, I think um, if people are interested, they should read the book. Um, if they're interested in a more historical background, they should read the two books that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they should draw their own conclusions. They should see. Um, I think it's a, a good look at how resilient human beings are. Mm -hmm. And uh, they didn't talk about the United States much, but uh, we were largely responsible for what happened. There's no denying that. When I was thinking of doing the documentary film, I went to a reunion of a, of a Navy unit that I had been involved with. And uh, one of the guys, a man I didn't even know, he asked me, you know, what are you up to, what are you doing now? And I told him I was thinking of making this documentary film. And he got... Um, well, agitated isn't the right word, but he got very intense, and mm -hmm. and he said, you have to do that. You can't think about it. You have to do it, and I'll tell you why. I was in naval intelligence, and we knew everything that was going on down there. We knew it all, and so, you know, our involvement didn't stop with uh, the coup in the 50s. It's still going on, and... Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know. It's something to think about. <laughs> well, obviously the intent was good in the sense of trying to do some social engineering for the better, but then obviously it backfires because situationally people that live there make those decisions. And sometimes on paper it looks good, but in real life it's not. Mm, well, sir, you're really giving us the benefit of the doubt on that one. It was just—it was just economics. It was uh, sure, sure. I agree with you, and I understand where you're coming from. I mean, reading the book and my experience in Malaysia and what my parents have talked to me about, and it's true. I mean, war is strictly about economics, and in today's world, ironically, that's what we focus on—strictly economics. I don't know what good or bad is going to come out of it, but we are teetering on the edge very quickly. Mm -hmm. Where can someone go to buy Not Our Day to Die, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? Well, I'm I'm now the proud owner of a Facebook page and a website, which my son Fantastic. designed for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say call my son and ask him. But 
I think you can look up um, Mike Sullivan or Michael Sullivan and not our date to die and find something. And the, the book is available from the, you can get it directly from the publisher, which is uh, Terra Nova Publishing in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's available through uh, Barnes and Noble. It's available through Amazon, and then uh, in the the more uh, classical form of distributing, there are three book distributors, and you can get it at almost any uh, local bookstore. Wonderful, and I believe your website is Michael Thomas Sullivan, right? Dot com. Uh, I think so. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's my first foray into that, and it's really not my my guiding light to the website. But yeah, it exists. If you look up, I think I don't know Michael Thomas or just Michael Sullivan, and uh, also put in the title of the book. It should take you there. Wonderful. How has writing not our day to die impacted you personally? Well, um, you know, I worked on it on and off for about uh, seven years. It was a big part of my life. And, uh, you know, when I was flying down there, the people were very appreciative of you uh, taking all the risk to fly these little airplanes around. But really, I think me and the other couple of pilots, we got more from them than they ever got from us. And this was just a chance to pay them back a little bit. And uh, mm-hmm. so the next thing I would like to do uh, is put it back into Spanish. I recorded the, the interviews, and I was able to listen to it in Spanish and write it in English, but my, my written Spanish isn't that good. So this is going to be a bit of a challenge to to... I just can't wait to go back down there with... Uh, you know, 40 copies of the book in Spanish and give each one of those people their own copy. Right, right. That's wonderful. I mean, what you're doing is truly epitomize the fact that we all need to understand what truly happens out in its kind of region. But not only that, I think it's the plight of everyone around the world. Like I mentioned before, we are tittering on this concept of it's all about business. We need business but then do we need business to rule the way we live? That's the other side of the equation. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you? Um, I quit flying a few years ago. I sold mm-hmm. the airplane after 27 years. Um, got this book out. So I guess to, you know, rather than uh, do anything sensible, I took the money from the airplane and uh, my wife and I got a sailboat. Fantastic. So we're, we're trying to learn how to sail. <laughs> See, the old Navy boy is coming back out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't get rid of it. <laughs> By the way, we're coming close to the end of the hour. Since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Um, you know, on that, I'm kind of in over my head, but, um, I would just encourage them to, of course, read this book and the others and, uh, 
um, I, I think gets the recipe for their living from the things that those people had to say. It's much, much more profound um, than anything I could say. There's one guy, one more guy I'd like to mention, um, mm-hmm. um, Gonzalo Ross. Mm-hmm. He, he was a man, he didn't want to be in the army, he didn't want to be in the guerrilla, he just wanted to have his farm. And he, he was just a, a very profound thinker, very profound pacifist. He just And he got caught in the middle and he lost everything. And, and uh, um, you know, he's surviving and his kids are surviving, but he lost his chance to be have an independent farm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the people like that, the women who survived the uh, hardships uh, in the jungle, people who lost their children and still have such a sense of humanity. Um, yeah, read the book. They they offer more than anything I could say on <laughs> Recipe for Life. Michael, you're so right. I believe that when you read the book, the various stories in the book would certainly give everyone a different perspective about life, a fresh look into life living in the pursuit of happiness. Michael, thank you for the wonderful recipe for living suggestion and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me in two weeks, Tuesday morning, February the 13th. My guest will be Jane Villa Gurr also known as Kaliani. She is a spiritually inspired visionary, producer, artist, and founder of Stargate Alliance Film and Media. Kaliani and I will be having a conversation about her life's journey and her latest project, Tears of Innahana. According to Kaliani, through Tears of Innahana, listeners are transported to an ancient mystical world where the sacred feminine is fully realized. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Michael, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed day, sir. Oh, same to you and thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is New York firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Every day, a part of every sub you buy at Firehouse Subs helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. And now, for a limited time, they're introducing the Daily Sub Special. Every day, get a medium sub of the day for just $5.55. They kick it off with Meatball Monday and finish it off with Italian Sunday with something delicious every day in between for just $5.55. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Tap the banner now to learn more. This is New York firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Every day, a part of every sub you buy at Firehouse Subs helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. And now, for a limited time, they're introducing the Daily Sub Special. Every day, get a medium sub of the day for just $5.55. They kick it off with Meatball Monday and finish it off with Italian Sunday with something delicious every day in between for just $5.55. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. 
Tap the banner now to learn more.